KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the hour, in the biggest strike in the nation this year, that's the strike by the University of California grad students, one group of strikers, the postdocs, have settled. Another group agreed to go into mediation. That's the teaching assistants who are refusing to grade final exams for tens of thousands of students this week. Nelson Lichtenstein will have our report. Also, we know a lot about the bad things J. Edgar Hoover did, but it turns out there's a lot we didn't know. Historian Beverly Gage will explain. Her new book is G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. He's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Good to be here, John, as ever. Well, the first thing we have to talk about is the news of the new mayor in Los Angeles, Karen Bass, former community organizer, former head of the Congressional Black Caucus. LA's first woman mayor was sworn in on Sunday. Her first act was to declare a state of emergency to address homelessness, and the city council promptly agreed. This means she can expedite permits for new housing. She can suspend some rules and regulations that have slowed it down. For affordable housing projects that are already allowed by law, she can let them skip lengthy additional review by city departments. She can demand that departments identify all city-owned property that can be used for housing. And she wants to speed up the leasing and purchase of motels, hotels, and apartment buildings for homeless housing. She promised during the campaign to move 17,000 people off the streets and into housing. The official homeless count in LA this year was 69,000. Of course, there are many obstacles that have stopped everyone over the last decade from doing most of these things. How much success do you think Karen Bass will have? Well, first of all, the 69,000 figure is for the county. I think the uh, the figure for the city of LA is like 41,000, if I'm remembering correctly. But okay. that speaks to one of the fundamental problems of governance, aka getting anything done <laughs> in Los Angeles. And it's it's really a, a, a problem that's a state problem. And I should add that all of the measures that are covered under the emergency declaration uh, from Mayor Karen Bass uh, is on top of similar declarations and requirements for cities imposed by Governor Newsom and the state legislature. But in many ways, the problem is the division of authority. Up to now, uh, when a major homeless project is proposed in a city council member's district, uh, under the structure of LA law, the council member pretty much can control uh, any development in uh, her or his district. And that has led to uh, all kinds of roadblocks to building uh, both housing for the homeless and affordable housing generally, which often means higher rise, more high rising buildings than a single, you know, families living in single story homes want. On top of which, uh, the county handles issues of health and welfare in all of California counties, including Los Angeles County. The city handles police and fire. 
And there's no logical reason why actually those two things couldn't be reversed, which I only say because uh, it, it gives you some sense of, well, I have to check with these people. They've got their own pot of money. The, count, the county had voters pass their own homeless bond measure. The city had uh, its citizens vote on and pass its own homeless bond measure. Uh, one thing Karen Bass has going for her is uh, as a result of her long experience where she was indeed a member of Congress, also Speaker of the California Assembly back in the Schwarzenegger years, she certainly knows all of the players and will have to have in particular a very close working relationship with the five county supervisors. I should add all of them are women. Karen Bass is a woman. So, the, the, you know, after years of uh, generally being dismissed and discarded, the, the, this has fallen upon uh, this new generation of uh, women elected officials to solve the mess that uh, the structure of government in California uh, brings with it. But LA is famous for a weak mayor system, an emergency declaration helps but it doesn't really improve the fundamental system, unfortunately. Just want to underline here that money has not been the problem with homeless housing. There was, in 2016, there was that those two propositions you mentioned, Proposition HHH and Proposition, Proposition H, which enabled the city and the county to issue more than a billion dollars in bonds. LA County just this year approved 600 million more there's LA agencies that get federal funding of more than $100 million. In addition to the city, the county, and the state, there's also federal housing vouchers, which are supposed to be pretty good, but really haven't been used much uh, in LA County to, or LA City. The officials say there's too much red tape, it takes too long to apply. So money is not the problem. It's an interesting story in the LA Times this week, a big story about the conversion of one abandoned hotel downtown, the Cecil, 600-room hotel, which was turned into homeless housing by a private developer. They spent $80 million on this conversion. That's $140,000 per room. And they've discovered, the LA Times reports, that a year after finishing it, homeless people don't want to live there. And why is this? The rooms don't have bathrooms. They forgot about the bathrooms. And it is understandable that if you're living someplace, you'd like to have your own bathroom. They also don't have kitchens. The kitchen is down on the first floor, and this is a multi-story hotel. Money isn't the problem, but there's some other problems. I am going to be a complete heretic and note that all of the uh, uh, obstacles that uh, we have in many ways strewn in our own path need to be overcome in the spirit, and this is what's heretical, in the spirit of Robert Moses. Oh my goodness. Uh, uh, you know, who wanted to bulldoze all kinds of very nice neighborhoods uh, to build his damned expressways and, and things like that. Also the man who was behind building the Triborough Bridge and uh, extending subways as well. But that kind of uh, authority, which Moses, as anyone who reads Robert Caro can attest, spent years amassing uh, in one agency and another with the power to override X and the power to override Y, 
we need some powers to override X and Y, which is usually the resistance of local elected officials in some neighborhoods uh, to creating the kind of uh, quick, affordable housing that uh, is required to uh, enable us to get people off the streets. And let me say that Karen Bass's proposal is a lot better than Rick Caruso's. Rick Caruso promised to get everybody off the streets, and he was going to do it by putting them in kind of giant warehouse spaces where there were cots six feet apart. The idea of actually having semi-permanent housing, which has to come with social services, I'm sure Karen Bass understands, this is a much better idea than just putting people on beds in, you know, abandoned warehouses. It's a much better idea. Uh, you know, the the issue then becomes, do we have, does Karen Bass or anyone else, anyone else have the oomph to uh, implement <laughs> yeah. it? Uh, yeah. That we, we, you know, as you have said, we have the money. Uh, we don't necessarily have the oomph. Well, now it's time for news of the class struggle in America, regular feature of this broadcast. The National Labor Relations Board made a significant ruling this week increasing employers' liability when they violate the National Labor Relations Act by illegally firing workers. Please explain what this is about and why it's important. Well, in many ways, the leading way that employers have been able to deter their workers' uh, efforts to unionize has been to fire some of the uh, leading workers in any organizing drive. Now, that is illegal. However, the only penalty under the rules of the NLRB uh, that can be assessed on the employers is that, you know, once this is adjudicated and goes through several levels of administrative judges, uh, if they indeed find that this has been an, uh, an unfair labor practice of illegally firing this worker, the employer is required to rehire the worker, assuming the worker wants to be rehired, and, and pay their back pay that they missed by being uh, out of work. Uh, however, uh, if those workers during this usually long period of being out of that company got some other uh, employment, then the amount the employer has to make restitution for is the amount lost minus what that worker made. In other words, uh, all, all an employer has to do is can uh, a worker, um, maybe if he's forced or she, she is forced to rehire that worker two years later, and that worker spent a year on another job, you got to pay that person one year's wages and post a notice that the NLRB said you did wrong, which is a hell of a lot cheaper than having your employees uh, vote to go union and, and, and signing a union contract. So uh, the NLRB recognized that this is an inadequate penalty, and at the urging of their very uh, shrewd and, and devoted uh, general counsel, Jennifer Abruzzo, they now have ruled that the employer has to pay the back wage, but also any other uh, expenses that uh, the uh, fired employee incurred because of uh, uh, being fired, uh, lost health insurance, no, no adequate funding for, for, for certain needs, uh, with investments spent down because of it. All of that, the employer is not required to do. And I might add that, you know, Jennifer Abruzzo was also telling the 500 attorneys who work across the country for the NLRB 
that they should file injunctions right away when these workers are uh, are fired. So the worker doesn't have to wait several years uh, to get his or her or their job back. <clears throat> Starbucks has uh, introduced a what I regard as an innovative approach to fighting unions, not firing the organizers, but under Starbucks founder and current CEO Howard Schultz, man who's dedicated his life to keeping unions out of Starbucks, he is now providing wage increases and improved benefits, but only for workers who do not join the union. Is this legal? The NLRB attorneys under Jennifer Abruzzo say it isn't, and they have taken this uh, before the administrative judges uh, who, who rule on violations of the National Labor Relations Act. It's it, it's plainly discrimination devoted to d- deterring your workers from the right to form a union. And it certainly suggests that paying higher wages by itself is not much of a problem for uh, Starbucks. They make plenty of money. They can afford to pay more money. They just don't want a union. Well, the New York Times uh, Sunday business section had a good piece uh, on Howard Schultz, which, which, which points out that, you know, his ego is completely attached to, you know, this model of Starbucks that he, you know, to take a line from Donald Trump, he alone can fix it. Yeah. Uh, that's his view. And, you know, I mean, this, this is really a pattern among an American business right now. Uh, many corporations have been accused of being woke because they are uh, reasonably uh, adaptable on the environment on dis- discrimination issues, you know, but find me a CEO who says, well, I am willing to share power with my employees. Uh, I'm willing to give up the power of arbitrarily setting wages and benefits myself. That is much harder to find as, as Howard Schultz uh, has made clear. Yeah, that article had some fascinating stuff about the changes in Starbucks since it was uh, founded. Originally, the idea was it would be a European-style coffee shop, but it turns out they make most of their money, like two-thirds or three-quarters of their money, off of these cold and frozen, complicated drinks. So what a a barista used to, pull a handle uh, and give you an espresso, now they have to make these elaborate, you know, the mocha cookie crumble frappuccino, uh, which is hard work, especially if you've got 10 people all who want half-calf or extra shot or, you know, soy milk instead. The frappuccino turns out to be a multi-billion dollar business, but it's a lot harder on the employees and they need more employees they need to pay them better they need to schedule them regularly all the reasons why starbucks workers are going out on strike trying to join unions at how many places is it now i think it's about 250 places that have voted to go union of course the 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 company owns 9,000 outlets so that's still a relatively small percentage and the rush to unionize has definitely slowed since Howard Schultz made clear if you don't go union, you get a wet, you get a raise. And if you do, you know, buddy, maybe you'll get it in four or five years or not. Well, that's all we have time for today. Harold Meyerson writes regularly for prospect.org. Harold, always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John.
same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The biggest strike in the country entered its fifth week. We're talking about the University of California grad student employees, 36,000 teaching assistants and research assistants. For comment and analysis, we turn once again to Nelson Lichtenstein. He teaches history at UC Santa Barbara, where he directs the Center for the Study of Work, Labor, and Democracy. He's the author of 16 books, including the definitive history of the United Auto Workers, titled Walter Ruther, The Most Dangerous Man in Detroit. He also writes for the New York Times, the LA Times, Descent, and The Guardian. We reached him today in Santa Barbara. Nelson Lichtenstein, welcome back. Glad to be here. Well, the latest news, the postdocs and the academic researchers voted last week to accept the university's offer to their local, which is separate from the teaching assistants. They accepted a $12,000 raise in the coming year. There are 12,000 of them. There are 36,000 still on strike. The new contract won overwhelming support. 90% of the postdocs, 80% of the academic researchers voted for it. They're going to go back to work on Monday. What's in this deal? The, the postdocs got a better deal, a 20 or 23% uh, uh, increase right away. Now, what that means really is, just to put that in context, it means the last time they had a, they, they, they finished their contract, which was in September of, of 2021, they'll get this big increase as of, I think it's as of September of 23. So over two years, they're getting, you know, 20%. Well, that's good. That's good. It's better than inflation. And then and then after that, much smaller increases, and it lasts for five years. The problem with five years in this inflationary environment is we don't know what's going to happen. There was a letter on my campus at University of California, Santa Barbara, from, from a, over 100 very distinguished uh, scientists complaining to the university, wait a minute, you've just given them a wage increase, but we're paying for it. And that means what that means is that out of their grants, they can have fewer, you know, uh, postdocs or, you know, et cetera. I think that was one reason they could they were were generous with the postdocs because essentially the federal government was paying for most of it. Then the academic researchers, these are a group we don't we don't know much about. They they they're permanent employees of the university or relatively permanent who are, you know, in again, mainly in the labs or other places of that sort. Uh, and there they their wage increase was 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 parallel to what the faculty would get. That is, you know, I, I think it's four and a half or percent again over every year over five years it'll amount to a you know a hopefully keeping up with inflation but it's not a um it's not a, it's not a transformative contract and that that was sort of what the the strike was about we don't want just an ordinary wage agrees we want something that will transform the meaning of work but one of the things that the academic researchers got, and I suspect this was something they really wanted, they can be principal investigators. That means they can write grants, they can get grants from their point of view. Many of them are, are PhDs. They also are, 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 are minimum hiring for two years rather than one, and I think that's very important too. So, I mean, it's not a, it's not nothing to to shout to the heavens about, but they got a considered a, a good contract. It will it will probably keep up with inflation, maybe a little bit more, and I think for the postdocs, it's actually even better. And then there are thirty six thousand workers who are still on strike. Mostly, right. these are the teaching assistants, and they're big. There's big news about them too. 
It's a crucial moment for the university. It's final exams week. Finals are not being graded. Something like 37,000 grades are not going to be turned in next week. The UC administration made what it said was its final offer last week. The union did not accept it. But then the UAW agreed to mediation. And the mediator is going to be the mayor of Sacramento, Daryl Steinberg. What exactly does this mean, and and how did it go over with the rank and file? The UAW uh, negotiators, who had been resisting mediation for a while, for quite a while, the UC had wanted it. They they sort of accepted it. It's kind of a hiatus right now. Uh, the, you know. Uh, I think they're fine. This is finals week, and and there, uh, there are no picket lines, and and then, well, the strike will resume in 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 January. But let me say two things. Daryl Steinberg, he was actually suggested by the governor, according to the news reports. Steinberg was the uh, head, I believe, of the uh, uh, the the California Senate uh, before he became the uh, mayor of Sacramento. He has just he just finished mediating a long. And pretty bitter strike uh, by the National Union of Healthcare Workers against Kaiser, which had gone on for many weeks in the fall. And he came in and they did resolve that. And the union seemed satisfied. Now, to the degree that uh, Steinberg is there, it, OK, this is a state issue now. This is you know, not just a, 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 in, in the UC's sandbox. And, and, and I think the issue then of okay, is there going to be more money for the university from the legislature? That is at least put a little bit more on the agenda, and I think it has to go on the agenda. So probably a good thing that Steinberg is the, is the mediator. He's not some routine kind of uh, figure, uh, but, but he's a major figure. How does mediation work? Is it mandatory? Uh, it's not. That's right. It is not. The strike can go on during mediation. It's not arbitration. Uh, he he, they, he can't just sort of have a dictate. That's correct. It it, it in theory it, it it might not mean anything. And UC has been playing a pretty hard line. And the graduate students, the teaching assistants, tutors, and readers, there's a unquestionably a very militant element among them who want to continue the strike, and that means withholding grades, and and that that could, that could continue happening well into the next next quarter. Uh, I mean, I think it's no secret that there, there's kind of a division among the uh, uh, these graduate students between, uh, well, for lack of a better word, a, a somewhat more militant faction and those who are, you know, looking looking for a good deal, looking for a good contract, but not, not really sort of willing to go to the, you know, <laughs> to go all the way, you know, for it. Meanwhile, this week, the UC administration has been talking about, I don't know if it's happened yet, sending yeah. out these attestation notices that require all teaching assistants and faculty to state whether they are on strike or supporting the strike. And this presumably would lead to their pay being docked. On the one hand, it's definitely an intimidation tactic. On the other hand, they waited until week five to do this. Uh, and I really wonder whether the university has the, the capability, the staffing, to change the employment status of more than 10,000 people. I mean, they have a hard time just getting the paperwork right when you go on leave or something like that. So it seems unlikely they're going to be able to follow through with this, but it's definitely they're escalating their tactics here. 
Yes, I think you're right, John. And I think they, they, it was clearly a, a gambit at intimidation. I, I don't think this one particularly will work. I think basically people will just not not respond in one way in one way or another. And I believe it may even be illegal um, violation of the of the California labor law uh, to to to, to do, uh, do that until after the strike is over. In, in any event, I, I don't think that's going to go very far. But what I think the the UC did was the UC UC said, okay, we've got our budget. Here, human resources. You guys uh, negotiate this, but you know you, you you're locked into this the framework, and that's part of the reason for the hard the hard line that that UC negotiators are 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 in. They 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 feel the constraint, but in fact, there's you know you have to get out of that box and get more money again from the legislature with the backing of the governor, and and we do have a more favorable political situation in California anyway, where that would be possible, and and the and in fact the strikers and the the union is now you know making. Uh, they're having demonstrations in Sacramento, and they're making this clear that this is not just a, a UC, uh, internal UC event. Last week, uh, you and I talked about the need to escalate the tactics beyond picket lines on campuses. There have been some pretty impressive demonstrations. There's a big one coming up on Wednesday. You and I are speaking on yeah. Tuesday when the regents will meet on the UCLA campus, and I'm sure that thousands of protesters yeah. will show up outside that one. Uh, the union has had picket lines outside the offices of some of the regents here in L.A. The LAPD arrested 10 people on December 7th on dress trespassing charges. They were rallying inside the headquarters of the David Geffen Company, one of our billionaire liberals in California. The CEO of the David Geffen Company is uh, UC Regent Richard Sherman, and they called the cops uh, and had people arrested. There were more than 100 strikers demonstrating outside a dinner party at the home of UC President Michael Drake on December 7th, singing songs and pounding on drums. And at my campus, UC Irvine, a flotilla of strikers in kayaks paddled out in Newport Bay to the private island of megadonor Donald Bryn. And they shouted, Donald Bryn, the University of California took your millions and bought mansions for the higher ups while teaching assistants slept in their cars, close quote. So the direct action faction is shown some life in the last week. Yeah, yeah, Tim, I want to make this point. I think it's it's not just a question of militancy, or, you know, getting arrested, that kind of thing. That's that's sometimes, yeah, that's fine. I mean, you, you, we, good, civil disobedience is, has its place and, and for sure. But when I when I, I think about upping the upping the uh, the ante, it's it's a question of bringing in other players into this fight, into this contest who should be there. The regents, you know, for one, I mean, they, they you know, in theory, and, and there are, you know, some regents who are who are liberals or you know they don't want the, they don't want the uc to be to be a, a kind of a poster child for disruption and then of course the legislature and the governor and you know that 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 kind of thing and i think they're they're part they're players in this in this fight as well and that's why this is an important strike it's not just something that can be resolved within the the, the context of the of traditional uc labor relations it, it's it's beyond that i think robert reich economist who's on the faculty at berkeley wrote just today quote the UC strike is not just an effort to raise thousands of academic workers out of near poverty. It's a movement whose success requires a reversal of the austerity that has subverted public education across America, close quote. And if we look at the history of all this, really it goes back to 
Arnold Schwarzenegger was the governor in 2005 who persuaded the university at that point to agree to this new idea that higher education should become a private good that students would purchase because they would gain earning power from it instead of viewing it as a public good provided by the people of California to all of its citizens. And that is the issue that the strikers have have put before the people here. Right, and it's, it's true, it's, you see in other places as well. I mean, here's the, the in, in the 1960s, after Clark Kerr put forward the, the master plan for you know, having the multi-campus University of California, which is, which is a, great, a great institution, uh, 50% of the funding for the university came from the state legislature, you know, out of the general tax revenues. Today, it's somewhere just above 10%. I mean, you know, so we've had that incredible decline. What that means, of course, is that, the UC has to well raise tuition. That's one thing that that happened actually under under Reagan, but also that it, it distorts what the university is to doing. You you end up scrambling for grants and stuff from various private philanthropies and and uh, trying to make the medical centers work, you know, and make money, etc. So it it you know we need to return to to a situation where the public universities are in fact funded by the public, and of course also the, they're they're bigger they're central to the economy and therefore the people who work in them they should be not just contingent kind of workers not not glorified uber drivers but you know regular employees who can have a life nelson lichtenstein university of california labor historian and activist nelson thanks for talking with us today you're welcome It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The left has hated J. Edgar Hoover for a hundred years, ever since the Palmer raids of 1919, the attacks on radicals that began his career. Now there's a terrific new biography of Hoover that puts it all together from beginning to end with a lot of stunning new information. It's called G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. The author is Beverly Gage. She teaches history at Yale. She writes frequently for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the New Yorker. Beverly Gage, welcome to the program. It's great to be here, John. We know a lot about the bad things Hoover did, wiretapping Martin Luther King and then trying to blackmail him into committing suicide right before he was to receive the Nobel Peace Prize, and COINTELPRO, the secret campaign to disrupt the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, the black power movement. But your book reminds us that Hoover also did some things that were not bad. So let's be fair and remind us what's on your list. Well, it is true that the book tries to take a a pretty balanced view of Hoover, which actually isn't that hard to do when you have someone who has been so villainized for so long. Even acknowledging a handful of good things um, puts you uh, puts you somewhere in the uh, the revisionist camp. Um, but I would say that most of the quote unquote good things that Hoover did in his life came out of a tradition of kind of professional government service that he learned during the progressive era when he was a young man. He believed in the power of the state. He believed in the power of expertise. And so there are lots of moments where he is 
actually acting as almost a civil libertarian. He opposed Japanese mass incarceration and internment during the Second World War, which was not a popular view in, <laughs> in even the Roosevelt administration. There are some great moments in the book where he stands up to Richard Nixon, and Richard Nixon thinks that uh, Hoover has become some sort of civil libertarian. Um, and then there are just some moments where the FBI actually delivers on what it's supposed to deliver on, which is solving crimes and uh, enforcing the law. Yeah, for example, in 1964, uh, he helped prosecute the Klan killers of the Mississippi Freedom Summer Volunteers, Mickey Schwerner, James Goodman, and Andrew Cheney. So I want to talk for a minute more about Hoover and Nixon. One of the good things that he did was refuse Nixon's request to go after Daniel Ellsberg after the release of the Pentagon Papers. So what exactly did Nixon want? This is 1969, 1970, and why did Hoover refuse? Nixon wanted it's the FBI didn't refuse altogether uh, to investigate. They were kind of looking into things, but Nixon wanted a much more aggressive campaign. And Hoover held back for a couple of reasons. One is that in 1969 and 70, Nixon and Henry Kissinger had already asked Hoover to uh, wiretap White House staffers, members of the press who were suspected of leaking. And Hoover went along with it. He did it, but he wasn't sure it was going to be a very very good idea. And he was really worried about what would happen if it came out, particularly the wiretapping of members of the press. So he's already cautious about those things. He often uh, said that he was friendly with Daniel Ellsberg's father-in-law as well. So there was a personal side to this story. And Hoover was just growing a little bit more cautious in his old age. And I think a little bit more aware of just how combustible and controversial it would be in the end. And rightly so, you know, he said, we got to really hold back. They're going to make Ellsberg into a martyr. And uh, Nixon, of course, didn't didn't listen to him. <laughs> so what did Nixon do when Hoover refused to go after Ellsberg the way Nixon wanted him to? Yeah, it's one of the moments where Nixon says, okay, if the FBI isn't going to do exactly what I want, I'm going to have my own team. Um, and this is one of the origins of the plumbers and the plumbers themselves, who were sort of Nixon's dirty trick squad. Um, they had members of the FBI, former agents and others who had been trained by Hoover, uh, but who were now willing to do Nixon's bidding a little bit more directly. And that plumber's thing, as I recall, didn't work out that well for Nixon. Yeah, you know, he, he might have seen that this uh, if he had listened to Edgar, maybe it would have all been different. It's actually funny when you when you listen to the Nixon tapes. Um, Watergate happens right after Hoover's death. Uh, and a, a few years in, you you hear Nixon saying, if my old friend Edgar were still around, you know, it wouldn't all be collapsing around me like this. But before Hoover dies, just a year before he died, came the event that damaged him more than anything else in his lifetime, the break-in at the FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania, March 1971. Remind us what happened there. This is really a fantastic story, and it's been told tremendously well in a book by Betty Medzger called The Burglary, as well as a terrific documentary film called 1971 by Johanna Hamilton. Um, and it's an incredible story, first of all, because it's just a small band of activists in the Philadelphia area um, who in 1971 decide that they want to expose what the FBI has do been doing to the new left 
Um, and so they break in to a very small regional office in Media, Pennsylvania, which actually happens to be right next to my hometown. So I felt a kind of good hometown connection to this story. Um, and they go in and they steal all of Hoover's files, all of the files that are in there. Um, and this really becomes the moment that uh, we get some documentation of what almost everyone in the new left understood was happening, which was uh, FBI infiltration, surveillance um, of a wide range of activists. But the really great part of the story is that the FBI fails to catch them. And uh, so they they actually really got away with it and uh, came out and revealed themselves uh, about 10 years ago. Um, turns out a bunch of uh, good anti-war activists from the from the Philadelphia area. Later that year, after the media FBI burglary, the fall of 1971, Nixon decided it was time for Hoover to go. You say Nixon's advisors suggested various inducements he could offer Hoover, for example, they do a lot of very funny brainstorming about it. Um, like maybe we can bump him up to the Supreme Court. Yeah, that's maybe the one that can... really that's the one <laughs> that really got to me. Are you exactly. kidding? But the beautiful thing about that story is that Nixon actually brings Hoover in, tries to have this conversation, tries to make the case that the moment has come to step down. And uh, Hoover more or less refuses. He says, well, you know, Dick, if you insist and you order me to step down, you're the president. Obviously, I would have to do it, but I don't want to do it. And Nixon says, oh, OK, well, if you don't want to do it, nobody's <laughs> nobody's insisting on this. And why? Why didn't Nixon fire him when he decided? it was time for Hoover to go. This is one of the great questions of Hoover's career, and it's not just Nixon, right? Hoover was director of the FBI for 48 years. So he started under Calvin Coolidge, um, and he lasts under eight presidents, four of them Democrats, four of them Republicans. And so that's one of the big questions. How did he do it? And I think there are a combination of factors. So one that we wouldn't tend to think about today is the fact that even very very late in life, uh, Hoover was pretty popular. And for most of his career, he was incredibly popular. He was one of the most popular, best respected public servants in America, certainly in the 1940s and 1950s. Um, by the time we get to the Nixon years, I think Nixon sees a couple of things going on. One is that he really based a lot of his 1968 campaign and that a lot of his domestic politics around a kind of Hoover-esque law and order message. And so he's been celebrating Hoover um, and he's nervous that law and order conservatives are going to be upset with him if he forces Hoover out. Hoover knows a lot of things about the Nixon administration as well from the secret wiretaps that he had planted uh, for them. And, uh, you know, there are great quotes um, from kind of the end of the first Nixon term in which Nixon says that he fears, you know, if they really try to ease Hoover out, that Hoover is this man who's going to bring down the temple around him, that he knows everything and uh, it's just too, too dangerous. So Hoover died in office, May, 1972. What did Nixon say when he heard the news? Nixon said that old cocksucker uh, <laughs> and he, 
Uh, you know, it's an interesting moment because Nixon, I think, is very relieved when Hoover dies because it solves a problem that he's been trying to solve for a while, or at least he thinks it will solve his problem. Uh, but there also seems to be some real grief there. I mean, this is someone who had been in his life for 25 years. They had socialized together. They had been political allies. That phrase, that old cocksucker, you could take it to be an expression of admiration, which you do in the book, but you could also take it as a reference to Hoover's homosexuality. So we need to talk about Hoover's relationship with Clyde Tolson. That relationship was not a secret, right? What did people know about Hoover and Tolson during his lifetime? This was the key relationship of Hoover's life, and Clyde Tolson was his second in command at the FBI for most of his career, really from the 1930s onward. Tolson became an agent in 1928. Um, and it is a funny combination of a very open and very public relationship, and then a very inaccessible and in some ways quite secretive relationship. The open part of it is that they worked very closely together at the FBI for four decades. Um, and so their private and public lives were really fused. Neither one of them married, and they were obviously each other's primary social partner. So uh, they traveled together, they double dated together, they went to nightclubs together, and they racetrack together. And everyone in Washington, in New York, in LA, the places they hung out, knew to treat them as a couple. And they were a very widely accepted social couple. Now, whether you could then describe them as a gay couple is a slightly different question. So certainly they pushed back against that. Your evidence on uh, this relationship includes Hoover's private vacation photos. These are remarkable documents, and we salute you for publishing these in the book. Tell us about them and what you make of them. Yeah, Hoover left behind these amazing photo albums, and they are his personal photo albums. And certainly in the 30s and 40s, especially, a lot of what's there are very, very intimate photos of his vacations with Tolson. Um, the ones that I published are my favorites, but <laughs> there are dozens and dozens of these that you could choose from. And a lot of them are really very intimate shots uh, in back bathrobes, in uh, bathing suits, out on the beach, kind of private moments of gazing at each other, them with their arms thrown around each other uh, in a sort of friendly way, more than a romantic way necessarily. But uh, what really struck me about those is, on the one hand, just their, their, their genuine intimacy, which you can really see and feel in them, and then the sheer number of them. What did Bobby Kennedy call Hoover and Tolson? Bobby Kennedy was not super nice to them or big fans of them, and he used to refer to them as Jay Edna and Clyde. <laughs> I also was amazed to see that starting in 1962, the Mattachine Society, the first gay organization, started inviting him to their events. 
that was a great file to come across. <laughs> so the, the local Mattachine Society in Washington, D.C. is clearly having some fun with the FBI, you know, and at a moment when it required actually a lot of bravery and confidence uh, to do that, but they start putting Hoover on their mailing list, inviting him to such events as, you know, the homosexual in America, a lecture for uh, those who might want to be informed. And Hoover gets very worked up about this. He gets them called into the FBI and they say, well, we'll take you off our list if you'll take us off of yours. <laughs> great, great story. So now back to the beginning, young J. Edgar Hoover went to college at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., and joined a fraternity called Kappa Alpha. This is one of my favorite parts of your book. Tell us about Kappa Alpha. Kappa Alpha is really a fascinating institution and one that I didn't know much about when I started writing about Hoover. The National Kappa Alpha had been formed in 1865 uh, key year, end of the Civil War, to honor the memory and the lost cause of Robert E. Lee. And so throughout the late 19th and into the earliest 20th century, they're a really key institution uh, for white Southern men, uh, particularly very prominent white Southern political men. And two of the biggest figures in the fraternity at the moment that Hoover joined were John Temple Graves, who was uh, a segregationist, pro-lynching, Southern editor, very famous figure, a great champion of the Atlanta race riot, and not in the ways one might want. Uh, and the other was Thomas Dixon, who was the author of The Klansman, which is the film that became The Birth of a Nation. And they're really the two standard bearers of the fraternity on a cultural level. And then you've got all these Southern Democrats who were actively engaged in uh, creating segregation in the early 20th century. They're all kind of in the alumni chapters around D.C. And I think this is a lot of where Hoover gets both his racial um, and to some degree his political education is, is in his fraternity. And Kappa Alpha, I learned from Google, is still going strong. They have chapters at 122 schools. We record our program in Los Angeles, and there's a chapter of Kappa Alpha at USC. And it was in the news just uh, last year. It was one of six fraternities that refused to accept the university's new rules on preventing sexual assault at frat parties. Kappa Alpha still going strong. Well, we have to talk about Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Their execution in 1953 for stealing the secret of the atom bomb and giving it to the Russians was one of Hoover's highest profile projects. But now we know that the FBI basically went after the wrong guy. The Russians did get American atomic secrets, but not from Julius and Ethel. They got them from real nuclear scientists. First of all, Klaus Fuchs, who was caught by the Brits, and then from a brilliant young American physicist named Ted Hall. Ted Hall was identified in the Venona decrypts that the FBI had as a key Soviet spy at Los Alamos. The FBI investigated Ted Hall for spying, but they never arrested him, and he went on to live a long and happy life as a scientist. There's a book about uh, his life. It's called Bombshell, The Secret Story of America's Unknown Atomic Spy Conspiracy by Joseph Albright and Marcia Kunstel. Uh, and at the same time, we learned about Ted Hall. We also learned that David Greenglass, who was the FBI's key witness against the Rosenbergs, the brother of Ethel, 
admitted that he had lied about her in the trial, that she had not typed the documents Julius gave to the Soviets. And so his lies sent her to the electric chair. That story was told in an interview by Sam Roberts at the New York Times in 1996. And he later wrote a book about it called The Brother. That book had one unforgettable sentence. William P. Rogers, who was deputy attorney general at the time of the execution, and later Secretary of State under Nixon, admitted to Sam Roberts of the New York Times that the government's objective was never to kill the Rosenbergs, but to get them to confess. And he said of Ethel, quote, she called our bluff. She called our bluff. So Julius was a spy, but he didn't give the secret of the A-bomb to the Russians. Ethel was framed by the FBI and her brother. The real spy was never prosecuted. My question for you is, why did Hoover decide to go after the Rosenbergs instead of Ted Hall? Well, the Venona Project is a really interesting and somewhat complicated story. So on the one hand, uh, these are decrypts that the army gets during the war. Um, they begin after the war to collaborate with the FBI in trying to sort out what is in these Soviet communications. Um, and they find that a lot of them have to do with, uh, with intelligence and espionage. And so beginning in the late 40s, they work together. Um, Venona leads them, in fact, to a, a pretty substantial number of people, including Julius Rosenberg. Um, it leads them to far more people, as you suggest, than they're actually a able to prosecute. Um, and that's partly because their number one goal with Venona is to keep its existence secret. So they're able to go after Julius Rosenberg because they have a witness who is willing to testify, right? So because you have David and then Ruth Greenglass, uh, you're able to actually do something in court. And during the entire Rosenberg case, the existence of Venona is not known, though people uh, people do have a sense that there's something that the FBI knows that they're holding back. And in fact, they're right about that. But on the other hand, because you want to keep this secret, if you can't find a witness and you can't find material evidence, you can know to a great degree of certainty that someone like Ted Hall has been engaged in atomic espionage. But, you know, if you're prioritizing secrecy, uh, you're not going to go after him. And that was the decision that the, the FBI, the Justice Department and the Army made together. You know, when they went after the Rosenbergs, as you say, the hope really was that the Rosenbergs would then flip and talk about other people and they would kind of keep following this chain down the line um, and be able to uh, to go further. But the Rosenbergs do, in some sense, really, really stop it. And while Hoover was failing to get Julius and Ethel to cooperate, he was giving those most top secret counter espionage documents, the Venona decrypts, to the top British intelligence official in the United States, Kim Philby, who was soon shown to be a Soviet spy. How devastating was that for Hoover? It was pretty bad. That wasn't a great moment, right? So Kim Philby is this kind of illustrious a British counterintelligence person who gets sent over to be the, the liaison to the FBI and the CIA uh, in the very late 1940s, but of course turns out to have been a Soviet spy the entire time he's working for the British. So that was pretty devastating to uh, to American intelligence, the FBI and the, and the CIA both. And what did the CIA conclude about this whole episode with giving the Venona secrets to uh, Kim Philby? 
Yeah, one CIA official says something pretty devastating, which is that uh, the FBI and the CIA would have been better off doing nothing about Soviet espionage in the 40s and 50s, rather than uh, engaging in what they did and handing it all over, in essence, to Kim Philby and the Soviets. So um, you've said how popular J. Edgar Hoover was at the peak of his career. You have this uh, startling uh, opinion poll in 1964, after uh, Hoover denounced Martin Luther King as America's most notorious liar. How did that go over with the public? This is a really famous moment. It's still a point of reference today, uh, the moment that Hoover really publicly goes after King and calls him the most notorious liar. Uh, and today, of course, we think evil J. Edgar Hoover, nobody would support that, you know, kind of sainted Martin Luther King. But at the time, that is not at all how the politics played out. So in a, in a poll conducted in that moment, full 50% of Americans say that they support Hoover, 16% say they're on King's side, and then a whole bunch of people say uh, they don't really know which side to be on. And what's interesting to me about that poll is that it suggests you know, that some of our more comforting national narratives uh, should be rethought a little bit, because that's actually what the politics of the 60s looked like. So you conclude your story of J. Edgar Hoover, that this is a story about America in the 20th century, what we tolerated and what we refused to see. Right. Part of the goal in this book is not just to have it be about this very, very interesting uh, and long-lived and influential man named J. Edgar Hoover, but really to tell a story about the growth of American government, particularly of the security state over the course of the 20th century, and to tell a story about Washington and national politics itself. Um, and I think that Hoover conceived of himself as being a person who really policed the limits of American democracy and decided what was going to be legitimate speech and what was going to be illegitimate speech. And he did a lot of that in secret. And so I think today, there's something really to be contended with about the idea, first of all, that Hoover was as popular as he was. We tend to think, oh, he was a rogue actor and therefore had people only known what he was up to, surely they would have rejected it. But he was pretty open about a lot of what he was doing and in fact had very deep and widespread support. And I think that tells us something different about our story of the 20th century than we might like to think. Uh, and then the piece that was secret, which was, uh, some of the details of his secret apparatus um, also ought to lead us to, you know, think really seriously about the kind of security state that was built um, out of the pressures of the 20th century, the ways in which it has contained political possibility and political speech over the course of the 20th century. Um, and we should think about how much of that we want in our own lives today. The book is G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. In The New Yorker, Margaret Talbot called it crisply written, prodigiously researched, and frequently astonishing. The author is Beverly Gage. Bev, thanks for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks, John.
it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. 